I'm Donovan Kane. Welcome back to the podcast and this full-length audiobook presentation of Red Sin, book number one of the Sin series, written by New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Aletha Romig, and read to you by Samantha Prescott and Stephen Dexter. And now, episode 17 of Red Sin. Chapter 17. Julia. The library that Van had offered as my home base, office, work center, or whatever I wanted to call it, was as stunning as the rest of his house. It was also cozier. I realized that there was beauty to the open concept, but four walls, two lined from floor to ceiling with books on beautiful wood bookcases, another with large domed windows looking out onto tall trees in a forest, and a fourth with the French door entry, not unlike the one at the front of the house, and another fireplace made me feel less exposed. The furniture was rich and sturdy. The desk was tall and wide, reminding me of the antique library tables. I had barely dived into the information Van had accumulated as I got myself settled. He had plastic totes filled with physical information, magazines, newspapers, and photographs. After a quick search, I found the photos were primarily of buildings rather than people. There was also a file filled with flash drives in dated compartments. This was what Van wanted in his memoir. I couldn't help but wonder what he didn't want in it and why. If I were simply a person from the outside hired to write his story, I didn't know if I'd have the same level of curiosity. As it turned out, I wasn't simply an outsider, not anymore. Van had offered to marry me, for us to join in name as well as physically. That gave me the right to dig beyond the benign surface. That's what I told myself. More than once, Margaret came in to check on me. She also asked if she could clean my suite. I declined. While Van had warned me about coming downstairs dressed, he forgot to mention that someone may go into my suite, see my unmade bed, and draw the uncomfortable, albeit accurate, conclusion that I hadn't slept alone. I couldn't get a good read on how I felt about Margaret and Paula, or what they thought of me. But I did make a mental note to make my bed and pick up in my suite from today forward to any Fridays that followed. I also replayed my conversation with Paula in my head, looking for answers to the myriad of questions forming, their number increasing by the minute. Van's last name was Sherman. Where did the Madison come from in Sherman and Madison Corporation? Why did Mrs. Mahan say that some questions are better unasked? Is there significance in his company's name that I don't know? As my computer booted up and ran yet another update, I gave up on the totes and walked around the room, taking in this personal side of Donovan Sherman. Saying the room had four walls shouldn't imply that the library was small. It was a large square and also tall. The ceiling went up beyond the one in the hallway. If I had to guess, I'd say it went up two stories. The sliding ladder on the bookshelves was directly out of every little girl's dreams, any little girl who watched Belle dance and sing on a similar ladder. The more I looked around, the more I became aware of what Van was lacking. 
While I hadn't been in every room in his home, not even close, I'd yet to see anything that resembled personal mementos. There were no framed pictures or special items. Back at my family home, my mother's fireplace mantle was filled with pictures of our family, my grandparents and great-grandparents, my aunts and uncles, and my cousins. There were pictures dating back to before I was born. In dad and mom's home office was a large framed picture of William and Priscilla Wade. William was my mother's grandfather and the man who founded Wade Pharmaceutical. I never knew him. I knew my grandfather, William's son, and my mother's father, Herman Wade. He was the person who ultimately decided to offer investment in Wade Pharmaceutical, diluting my family's influence in the operation of the privately held corporation. I knew from my study at Northwestern that the goal had been to raise capital. According to my father, it was the wrong move. My grandfather had the ultimate power to make the decision. His plan was to limit investors to trusted friends who could bring an influx of funds and avoid debt in the difficult environment. My grandfather's decision went against my father's advice. The rift that ensued between my father and my mother's father was why our family's stock shares were headed to me upon my marriage. It was one of Grandfather Herman's blows to my father before Herman's death. So far, I'd yet to see any pictures of Van's family. That thought reminded me of Margaret's comment, asking if I was Van's sister. With my laptop connected to the internet, my plan was to do more of a search on Donovan Sherman. Before I did, I scanned my emails and shook my head. The executive in training position I'd had for the last year at Wade accounted for 90% of my unopened emails. There were a few from the wedding planner. Mother could take care of anything regarding the wedding. I typed out a request to Lee, my assistant, telling her that I would be unreachable through at least the 3rd of January, the end of the holiday weekend. I asked her to handle whatever arose, and if she needed further direction, to contact my mother or father. When the rift between Grandfather Herman and Dad came to a head, Mom took her place in the company. She'd always been involved beneath the surface. However, the upheaval within the family was getting to be more than she could handle from afar. Today, both of my parents were co-CEOs. Securing mother's position was another of grandfather's doings and a slap in the face to my father. Thankfully, my parents had worked it out. Grandfather might be disappointed if he knew how well my parents worked together. One particular email heading caught my eye. It was dated last Saturday morning, the date I left Chicago. Subject line, emergency meeting of shareholders. The email was sent by Marlon Butler. I searched for the minutes from the meeting, but they weren't in my email. Either the meeting was never called, or I'd been omitted from receiving the minutes. Either way, my suspicion was piqued. I sent another message to Lee asking for a follow-up on the meeting if there had been one. As I was about to log out of my email, another subject heading dated yesterday drew my attention. Unlike the company-wide email, this was directly from my father to me. My finger lingered over the mouse, deciding whether I wanted to open, leave as unread, or delete. I hadn't spoken to my father since I'd called off the wedding, only my mother. Holding my breath, I opened the email. On the screen was the place to enter a pin. 
This formality made me smile. The encoded email was something between me and my father. We started our secret system when I was still in high school. We'd use our clandestine messages to plan surprises for my mother, or to invite one another on special father-daughter dates. As an only child, I loved the times I'd get one parent to themselves. I'd dress up and dad would take me to one of the restaurants downtown. Sometimes my mother and I would dress up and go to tea at the Drake Hotel. The encoded lock on the email made it impossible for anyone else to come upon our correspondence and access what was written. I entered the four numbers that were special to us. The email opened. Julia, please call me. I want to talk to my little girl. Dad. I'm not a little girl, I whispered. But his reference didn't upset me. It added to my guilt. Maybe I'd been selfish. Maybe my father would have more understanding for my situation. Then again, he was Marlon Butler's best friend. Or he thought he was. If I called, I could warn him. I took a deep breath as I looked at my phone. The signal was currently good with five bars and the battery charged. Leaving both the information Van had left me and my laptop in the library, I stepped out into the main level. In the distance, I heard sounds as well as pots and pans and smelled the aromas of more and different foods. As I climbed the steps, I heard Margaret's vacuum in what I'd been told was Van's suite. Curiosity pulled me toward her. I made it to the hallway. Unlike the one containing my suite, there was only one option in this hallway. Double doors at the end, currently ajar. All I'd have to do was take a few more steps to be at the threshold. It was as if there was an invisible tug of war occurring in the realm beyond my ability to see. I was pulled toward the doorway, hoping for more personal touches to Van's life and history. Surely a man as passionate as Van Sherman had mementos to remind him of others. And at the same time, there was a wall. It wasn't as if I could touch it, but it was there nonetheless. It was a barrier that I didn't want to cross. It was as if I were on a precipice. Will I learn more about the man I am attracted to? Or will I lose his trust? The End of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Red Sin, book number one of the Sin series. Written by New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Aletha Romig. And read to you by Samantha Prescott and Stephen Dexter. You can find out more about Aletha Romig and her books at aletharomig.com. Find out more about the show at steamystoriesforwomen.com. Dot com.